Hello, hello, and welcome back to The Sit Down, hosted by Shawnee Dez. I am your host, Shawnee Dez, and this episode is brought to you by The Chicago Reader. On today's episode, we are sitting down with the Trina Reynolds-Tyler, aka Trina T, and Sarah Conway. Trina is the data director at the Invisible Institute and leads Beneath the Surface, and Sarah is a senior reporter at City Bureau. Together, they have partnered to investigate patterns of how the Chicago Police Department responds to missing Black women and girls in Chicago. They've recently conducted a two-year investigation into the ways that CPD handles missing persons cases and the disproportionate impact on Black women and girls. Their findings also highlight the mistreatment of missing persons family members, delayed cases, and how inaccurate data is making the missing persons crisis harder to solve. Thank y'all so much for listening in. And remember, if you or a loved one is experiencing domestic violence, maybe missing or any other types of harm or abuse, please seek the help of your community and professionals. And also, if this episode gets to be too much for you at any point, please do what you need to do to prioritize your mental health and maybe take a break and maybe just turn it off altogether. But for those of you who are tuned in right now, I thank you so much for listening. This is a really important story and it's one that needs to be heard. So if you find anything informative from this, please be sure to share it with loved ones, share it with your community, share it on your social media. Um, thank you guys so much again for tuning in. Trina, can you just tell me a little bit more about yourself, your background and what brought you to this work? Um, peace, y'all. My name is Trina. I go by Trina T. I came to the Invisible Institute, honestly, by way of some organizing work I was doing with the Black Youth Project 100. I was their communications co-chair during the campaign to fire police officer Dante Servin. And while on that campaign, there were a couple things. One, I was looking for data sentences about things that had not quite been researched yet. And then I also, in the process of that campaign um, for the firing of Dante Sermon, um, the off-duty officer who murdered Rakia Boyd, we uh, he was able to resign before his firing hearing. And that got me really interested in the systems of accountability um, in the Chicago Police Department and also just like in policing in general. Um, as a survivor of intimate partner violence, too, I know that there are so many people who just don't call police because, honestly, it's, you know, it's um, people often only call police when they feel like things have gotten so much out of their hands. And so there's a huge population of folks who are experiencing crime, who are experiencing conflict, who are in um instances where violence is escalating and police are not even in, being engaged. And then there are people who, when engaging police, are like, you know, they're mistreating me. And so when I joined the Invisible Institute, I initially began doing outreach for the Citizens Police Data Project, a database that houses police misconduct records today going back to 1988, um, you know, over the years, I think since the moment I joined, I've been interested in doing a project like Beneath the Surface, something that actually contextualizes um, police misconduct beyond these tidy rows of um, rows and columns of data and that connects people's narratives, um, narratives that are not just operation and personnel violations, but are shared experiences that connect people across time and space 
and I felt gender-based violence was a really important um, issue and thing to dive into because a lot of times nationally and locally, we have conversations about, you know, black men and excessive use of force, deadly force, right? And, um, and we're often not naming some of the people who are really most impacted by policing survivors of violence and many survivors of violence in this city are black women and girls. Sarah, can you add to that and just tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into the conversation? Sure. My name is Sarah. I'm a journalist. I've been with City Bureau since 2016. I came to reporting um how do I say this? I was pregnant with my oldest daughter and I switched careers kind of. Um, I started out freelancing in Chicago and I ended up connecting with City Bureau. Trina had mentioned earlier, we ran into each other and saw each other a lot in Experimental Station and Woodlawn. Yeah, I joined Invisible Institute in 2016 as well. So we were both in the, you know, but we didn't hang. Yeah. Um, and so I found in reporting and how I think I ended up linking with Trina was I've been for a long time really interested in how systems, whether it is um, intervention programs with the Cook County Circuit Court, um, the way that people can get sucked into the Cook County Jail, Illinois women's prisons, um, thinking about the maternal health care system that we have in Chicago and Illinois. I've thought a lot about how these systems hinder and harm and in what ways, if possible, they can serve people and how people are impacted by them. So throughout my time at City Bureau, I've been reporting a lot about how people survive, particularly femme people. And I think that that general interest in reporting, Trina and I ended up linking up together to really dig into for the past two years, how the Chicago Police Department handles missing persons cases, which she mentioned impacts children um, disproportionately, but specifically black children and um, black women as well. I think one of the greatest reasons why I'm so excited to sit down and really just talk about the data um, isn't to look at it from a different perspective, really personifying these numbers and really giving um, stories to these victims and and just bringing them to a space where we can see them fully. Um, in the piece uh, that's featured in the reader, one of the things mentioned was that the lack of visibility also um, aids in why this is disproportionate. It's because of things like redlining. It's because of things like hypersegregation um, in just the infrastructure of the city that further causes folks to like have this sort of out of sight, out of mind attitude. Um, and so can you all sort of speak to um, really how, I know Trina, you're an aunt, and I know, Sarah, you're a mother. Can you sort of speak to how your own experiences uh, being uh, femmes or women, um, being Trina, you being a black woman in the city, like how that informed your, I think your approach to this investigation. I think it's one thing to say, um, and, and I want you to also talk about your work uh, with data and being the director 
um, of data reporting over at the Indivisible Institute. But I think it's one thing to sort of have this technical lens, right? And then I think it's another thing to have this sort of human, um, this human piece that you're adding to what you're finding to kind of help push you forward, but also to inform you like our lived experiences our data like that is data that's information so can you just talk to me more about that oh certainly yeah i um i i jokingly say like i'm a hood data scientist and like that is it's kind of ridiculous but it's also because i i do believe that the the human context that i bring to data science in criminalized populations um is really relevant because there are a lot of people in this city, nationally, where, wherever, right? Who go from survivor of violence to perpetrator of violence. And, you know, we often see, right, policing of the criminalization of folks, the mass incarceration of folks. And we're not talking about them as survivors. We're talking about them as offenders. And, and when you dig a little deeper into the data, into the lived experiences of folks, especially criminalized populations, populations who have historically been disenfranchised um, or displaced, um, uh, you see that there are a lot of systems that are, that are working, um, that are working and enable the violence to ensue. And so, you know, a lot of times we're going to see, you know, you see on the news like Chicago, all the homicides, like all of those people, you know, their lives are just just uh, when we're looking at that data, that individual person, you're not even able to account for their relationship to other people within a neighborhood. You're not able to account for the, you know, the children the families who may have been leaning on this person for financial support, like all of these, you know, the little things, right, that um, that really matter. And so, um, you know, when looking at data, even in this project, um, I think because of my lived experience, I was able to ask different types of questions build different types of relationships, create different types of spaces for sharing so that folks can be honest about um, traumatic experiences. You know, missing persons is not just like someone goes missing. Missingness is a cycle, right? So I'm, and that cycle is deeply woven into so many underlying issues, substance use, abuse, disorder, um, displacement, housing, eviction type stuff, mental health access, um, intimate partner violence, and, you know, conflict ultimately. And all of that stuff is inherently connected to crime, inherently connected to the stuff that we're seeing reported on the news all the time. But again, you know, as a data scientist, being able to talk more fully about people and not, not, um, not, filtering them down to some offense that they did but taking into consideration the 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 moments that passed before this moment um in order to paint a picture you know to get a fuller scope of this data um was really important to me i think one of the things you just mentioned was this sort of flattening of these people um 
And Sarah, I want to know a little bit more about once you all started to dig deeper, what did you all find or discover underneath these numbers or underneath these uh, reports? I found that um, you all mentioned a lot of the missing persons cases are still reported on paper versus them being put into like a computer, a system that can be more easily accessible and sent out. Um, what were some of the things you all were finding as you started to dig deeper? That's a great question. Um, I think that our approach of pairing data with a lot of on the ground reporting, like very, um, person focused. We spent a lot of time talking to families who've been impacted by this, who have had a loved one who've gone missing. So we were trying to, I think, bring both what we could see in data, but also in lived experience to light. Um, and so what we found was really that people, families were often frustrated by trying to navigate an extremely bureaucratic system um, where they already felt, um, I want to say judged oftentimes. People felt that, you know, their loved one was blamed for going missing. Um, so navigating that system, not really with a lot of resources and often often having to use their own resources. Um, that can mean like, you know, actually money, having to to pay for posters, having to, um, you know, take off time from work, gather people to actually look for someone because people felt like often no one was actually looking for their loved one. Um, to tie it back to the form that you mentioned, one of the things that we learned through talking to police officers was that they themselves were frustrated that uh, the missing persons form is one of the last forms to be digitized for the Chicago Police Department. Something that we found when we talked to other national police departments is actually not really a standard anymore. Um, many people have digitized forms just because it makes the system more effective. Um, the data is smoother. It's it's less likely that something's going to fall through the cracks. And so, you know, talking from families that were have experienced having a loved one going missing and police as well, we started to kind of see that um, people felt like there were a lot of delays. They were unsure with the quality of police work that was going into looking to a loved one, as well as I think the dynamic of abuse that can show up where people feel like police are blaming their loved one for going missing or maybe not putting the same amount of effort that they would into another missing person's case into looking for their loved one. So those were some of the themes that started to show up as we started talking to people, but it was also reflected in the data, which I think is really important. That's been something that Trina and I feel a lot, you know, if something's not in data, it doesn't exist. That part. Yeah. So like, like some people are not even making it into the data. Like one of the things we learned from talking to families was like they had to fight to get their loved ones missing persons report because officers were like, well, well, they're an adult. Maybe they ran away. Maybe they're with their boyfriend. Maybe. And, and, you know, Shantaya Smith's mom, for example, she's like, she has a baby at home. She she takes her baby to school. 
She's not going to run off with some, she not, that's not, that's not who she is. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's as if from the very moment that she walked into there, she had to begin to build her case as to why her daughter was worthy enough of being reported missing. Shantae Bohannon, similar deal. Her mother came into the station. They were like, well, she probably ran away. She don't worry about it. She's okay. Shantae Bohannon's mother, Miss Tammy, was distraught, right? She had to come in the next day with Shantae's father for officers to take her seriously, right? And so, and so what we're seeing when we're talking to family is like the ways that racism, sexism, you know what I'm saying? Uh, um, um, ageism. Ageism, right, is, is playing a role in, in what actually makes it into the data that we see. Not to mention that they're writing this on paper and then they got to phone it in to be like, missing person section, there's a missing person. And then that paper goes to the detectives and then the detectives get the paper for review. Like, it's like there are all of these steps which allow for folks to not be um, reported missing. Yeah, it seems like uh, even when just how you... Um, and one of the things you mentioned, it seems like there is a game of telephone that happens. So it's like there is an officer who writes something on a notepad. It's probably gibberish handwriting, um, really condensed language so that they can get it out fast. And then they have to call it in and tell it to someone else. And then that sort of sends me back to like this process of like flattening, right? And so flattening these stories um, and not necessarily documenting what's happening in full descriptive detail. Can you speak a little bit more about what that was like looking through things like that, Sarah? Sure. One of the things that we found that people want actually recorded on the form, there's a lot of data that's missing from forms. Officer arrival time is often one of the the key things. Um, it's hard to even measure some of the disparities that people have brought up in terms of the police services that they receive because it's, it's not actually in data. I think the other end of that... Um, Desire is also amongst law enforcement themselves wanting to collect more data. Um, I think with not so much with the idea of surveillance, but really there are some people as well as researchers who really feel that, you know, when people go missing and they do come back, particularly young people, um, particularly black children in Chicago, what is happening while they are missing? Why are they missing? And when, um, you know, people can relate things anecdotally, but when that's not captured at all, it's hard to know. One of the things that we found in our reporting that is children are often doing survival work when they're missing um, and that the high rates of black children going missing in Chicago is connected to the housing crisis that we also have. So we really found doing this reporting that missing persons is about policing and it is about missingness, but it's about so much more than that. It's about the mental health crisis that we have, domestic violence crisis, we have housing crisis. Um, it's about children not getting the care that they need when they are in state services, when they're in foster care. That was a really common narrative that we heard that, you know, children running away because they're being harmed in those places and then being forced to find ways to survive, which can really endanger children. You know, it, it ended up being that 
kids um, are in situations where adults can harm them and do harden them. We think about Tequila Tribbett, who is one of the um, the children who's in our story, who was in DCFS and was frequently running away, was frequently being picked up by police, um, and she was ultimately murdered while she was still in grade school um, um, by an adult who had who had um, you know groomed her online. And so these are, I think, one of the things that Trina and I really wanted to do is that there is. Every year, you know, in Bronzeville, there's young people who are organizing the We Walk for Her March, right? A lot of the things that are in our story are things that those young people are saying. And we really wanted to find a way, how can we marry police data with records, with lived experience, with research to show that, you know, these things are real and they deserve resources. And we... You know, there's a large conversation about how do we handle these things, and oftentimes we just turn to police to handle them. But if you talk to police officers themselves, most of them will tell you that they're not equipped to do this work. They don't have the resources. They don't even like dealing with the high number of children that are running away. Um, and so we wanted our reporting to bring up um, questions. And one of the things I, I, you know, we had talked about earlier is like kind of like how did you end up doing this work? I was really intrigued of working with Trina because. We, we I remember we had our first meeting and I think build <laughs> build coffee. Um, shout out build. <laughs> Love you, Hannah. We had our first meeting there and I remember Trina was like, I am doing reporting about um, how you know women and girls interact with policing. And I was it's interesting when you're doing this work kind of sometimes you know why you start doing it and then you kind of throughout the process other things are illuminated. but um, I was really interested in doing this because um, when I was a when I was a six years old, I grew up in Joliet. When I was six years old, my aunt went missing, um, and she was later found dead. Um, but one of the it's okay. I'm you know it's I think that the important thing from it was when we were doing our reporting. Oftentimes, families were talking to us having been very gaslit by police. And I I really, um, both of us are so devoted to this work because the people who have been really directly impacted, these families, they often know the solutions to this. Um, you know, they, they can very clearly point out what is wrong with how police handle these cases. Um, and, and they can also point to the social issues that are really driving missing persons things. And so when we we're doing this reporting, a lot of times I kind of would memory jump. Like I would think about, even though, um, you know, that experience was really unique to my family, I, I thought about how hard those weeks were for us. And we ended up interacting with families where they've been dealing this with for eight years. We think about Sonia Rouse. She's been missing for eight years and her family's been dealing with this. And you know, it's one of those things that I even remember with us growing up, you know, growing up was that um, seeing one of the things families have talked about is like mothers are like, this has impacted me so much. This has impacted, you know, her sisters, um, but also other people in the family. So this really resonated to me, I think, as a reporter, knowing that this is actually real. Um, so, you know, that's kind of, I think, is something that when I point to, I think what we wanted to to share is that um, these things can often be debated of like, are police, 
are they discriminating against black families when their loved ones go missing? And I think we wanted to show that that recognizing that is really the baseline, that it is something that is real. It is something that's going on. And we wanted to try to prove that through records, through testimony and through data. Yeah. And just coming back to this idea of like playing telephone, right? Like, you know, Jason Moran, Commander Jason Moran, one of his quotes in our story is that, you know, he says, you have to treat this piece of paper, you know, this missing persons report as if this is the only document that you have when you are in the morgue looking at a body, right? Like you have to, you know, the information that you are taking when you are writing a missing persons report is so important because there is a there is a unit of detectives at the morgue right now whose job it is to identify unidentified bodies, right? And even in NamUs, the database, uh, federal database, has missing persons and unidentified persons. And a, a part of that is because, right, you know that if someone is missing, you know, there's a possibility that they could be found in another place and and they could be an unidentified person. And all you have is their missing persons report, these descriptions of them, right, DNA that you take from the family um, in order to um, identify that person. And, um, you know, it's frustrating because when you look at, you know, for so long before we did this reporting, COCO, the Kenwood Oakland Community Organization, they with, you know, in partnership, they have these young folks who organize this march, we walk for her, and they would be saying things anecdotally, right? Find our girls. Our girls are missing. Da 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 da. We look at the data, and ninety nine point eight percent of the cases are closed non criminal. Ninety nine point eight percent of the cases are closed non criminal, meaning incident closed and not criminal in nature. These are not definitions we made up. This is information we asked of the public records officers. And when we asked them about records that they kept related to folks being found deceased or, you know what I'm saying? Like any type of further information, they said, well, cases are reclassified. You know, cases may be reclassified, you know? And and with that, I have a question about that. With that reclassification, does that then mean that it's, closed from missing persons and then sent elsewhere or does it mean what does the can you explain the closed aspect i understand the non-criminal nature but what is the closed? because are these girls found so are first i'm gonna speak reclassification and how that is we can see that in the data joanna wright for example a um black woman who was kidnapped and initially she was reported missing. Later on, they learned that instead of her being a missing person, she was a kidnapped person. So the UCR code went from 6050 to the kidnapping UCR code or whatever, you know, the incident code, right? Um, um, even in the case of Marlon Ochoa Lopez, the pregnant 19-year-old um, Latina woman, girl, you know, young person who was reported missing. You know, they later found out, you know, weeks later that some folks had cut her baby out of her stomach and pretended like it was their own baby and put her in a in a garbage can. 
you know, um, her car car was found, you know, later with lots of parking tickets on it. Um, interestingly, even though, you know, so you, that is like the extreme disconnect right there. But Marlon Ochoa Lopez, you know, her case was reclassified to a homicide. And um, you can see that in the data. Um, you know, this in this these folks were charged, you know, with her murder. Case of Daisy Hayes, um, a black woman, a senior citizen who um who has never been found. But there is footage of her boyfriend at the time who was um seen going her she goes into her apartment, he goes into her apartment later, and and you see him for hours cleaning up. You know, including pulling a suitcase and putting it into the garbage can. Folks are under the impression that her body is in a landfill. Jimmy was charged with her. Um, you know, he was acquitted of her murder, but you know, her case is a homicide in the data and is now cleared closed, right? Because someone has been prosecuted. And so when looking at the reclassification of cases, you know, we we had lots of questions because we're like, okay, is this only related to when someone is charged in the murder of this person? Um, but then as we got deeper into the reporting, cross-referencing missing persons data with Cook County Medical Examiner's data and reporting done online by other journalists, we found an additional, you know, we found an additional 11 murders that were actually classified in the data as closed non-criminal. 11 murders whose, whose, you know, whose cases were very clearly a homicide, you know? Um, and, and if you were to look at the data face value, you would, you know, you, you see that 99 point, you know, over 99%, right? Close to a hundred percent of cases closed non-criminal. And you see some handful of cases, less than 300 of them that become something else, right? Uh, offense against children, a homicide, a kidnapping, right? Criminal sexual assault. Um, and when looking at the data from the past two decades, right, you see 10 homicides. What we were able to do was find 11 additional homicides within the same time period, again, that were classified as closed non-criminal, even though the homicide case had been open in relation to that missing persons case. And so... Is is this an issue of miscommunication within CPD or is it, I don't know, is it negligence? Because how, I my question is just like, how is this happening? That's a really good question. I think from talking to police sources, in some way it seems that there is people are confused on what they're supposed to be doing in terms of class. There is no closed case there's no procedure for closing cases so some point to like this could be a police training issue um i think there's always the larger question that sometimes when we talk to people who deal with data is on a higher level how do police when they are not collecting data they're not reclassifying things which by the way are supposed to go to the fbi ultimately um uh the uniform crime reporting um data that is ends up you know, going into national crime statistics. Um, I think some people have questions about the larger way that police might um, intentionally or unintentionally uh, manipulate data. Um, but this was all what we felt like really important because there is a state task force in Illinois that's following other task force around the nation that are 
looking into this issue. It's the um, the task force on missing and murdered Chicago women and girls. So one of the things they're trying to understand is the systemic issues that are driving this crisis of missing persons in the city um, that is driving the murder of women locally and possibly the connection between the two. But one of the things that our reporting found to kind of summarize what Trina just said is that police are not even internally connecting these things in their data. I and think, that's kind of like right. when it doesn't even exist in data, does it exist? At all. And 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 like, you know, again, we're just two reporters who are using data science and narrative justice to understand this stuff. And um a part of the the one of the re things that sparked this investigation was, you know, beneath the surface, you know, uh my team, we built an algorithm to parse through narrative text of police misconduct records. And from 2011 to 2015, and we identified 54 complaints that were filed related to missing persons cases. And one of those complaints said, you know, it was a DCFS worker and and this worker is describing, you know, calling an officer saying this young person isn't hasn't been found. And the officer says, oh, well, I, you know, that person has been found. And then the DCFS worker says, no, I checked and that young person is not there. And then the officer, you know, um, I forget if it's he hung up on her or if he laughed or whatever it was. And so we knew that there had been some complaint of an officer, of someone saying officers were closing cases before finding people. And by the end of our time reporting, we were able to identify four cases where Chicago police claimed that someone had been located, even though they had not been. And again, those those cases live within the closed non-criminal. Um, the, in the case of Desiree Robinson, 16-year-old um, who um, ran away from her grandfather's home on November 29th. Right. She uh, she, you know, had been in touch with, you know, she it was clear she had been alive because she had been in touch with her friend on Facebook Messenger or some, you know, some some chat medium on December 20th. Officers closed Desiree Robinson's case. Said we spoke with the complainant. Complainant says she's found, you know, she's been located. You know, there's no issue. She had not been located. Right. Four days later, she was located, though, murdered in um, in Markham. Um, she she had been murdered. Right. Uh, but but that is four whole days where, according to the Chicago Police Department, she was safe and sound. And and we have no we no longer have a reason to look for her when she was, in fact, being abused. Right. She she was murdered after having been trafficked, you know, um, um, and just reading her autopsy was so gruesome. I mean, a another case, right? The Cook County Sheriff's Office, they have a missing persons project, this project where they're investigating cases that, um, um, that are unsolved, but they're not getting their cases directly from the Chicago police department. They're getting their cases from NamUs and, um, they happen to have a missing persons day and Lindsay Murray, her or Lindsay Franklin Murray, her daughter came to the missing persons day and gave her DNA and was like, my mom has not been found. 
her mother's case had been closed already. And it was it said that she had returned home. Oh, and that she was about a year after she had died. Right. And Lindsay was in the morgue as a Jane Doe and Chicago police officers on her case. They said, you know, again, spoke with the complainant, you know, Lindsay's good. She was not. And 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 thankfully, her daughter was so committed. Her one, her daughter had no idea that this was the case, you know, that CPD had closed the case. But thankfully, her daughter had her ear to the ground, went to the missing persons. They submitted DNA. This sheriff, yeah, this sheriff, uh, again, Jason Moran, Commander Jason Moran, he remembers getting DNA from from the daughter. He was, he, he put in this legwork. You know, there's an article online that says, you know, case finally solved after 11 years. Lindsay's case was closed non-criminal in the data in 2014. In 2014, they just identified her in the end of 2022. Something that's I'm hearing that is uh, happening with these families is that there is a disregard as well for the families, because I think even in putting in the system that folks have returned home, in the case of uh, Desiree Robinson, no one had even contacted her grandfather when they put that in the data. So when they went in the system and put that down, there wasn't even this um, respect to say, let's actually very thought out in that how can we know that someone has returned home if we haven't talked to the family at home, the people who put the complaint in, and then you have something in the case of Lindsay Franklin where a whole year went by and her daughter hadn't even heard anything from police at all. So I don't know. I guess I'm wondering what kind of systems outside of um, law enforcement and policing have to be happening for this to be the reality that we're in in Chicago. That, And I, I'm sure it's happening nationally Um but specific to here? That's a really good question. I think from talking to a lot of families, going through a lot of underlying police reports, going through um, autopsies, we started seeing a lot of through lines that we would talk a lot about in our own reporting. One of them being that, not exclusively, but oftentimes there were people who were really struggling with substance use disorder or struggling with an underlying mental health disorder. Bipolar disorder was something that showed up um, in a number of cases that we looked at. Um, there was also, you know, we saw that some women and girls had been experiencing sexual violence, been experiencing physical violence, neglect. Um as well as housing insecurity. So there was kind of like, I think a lot of the social issues that in some ways Chicago tries to deal with, but is never pours enough resources into, um, those are connected to this outside of policing. Yeah, I mean, and then like, I think like the issue of transparency, like if we were to bring it just back to police a little bit, like there's no transparency Um for families who who have missing loved ones, you know, there were numerous families who we spoke to. We informed them the status of their loved one's case. We informed them that their case was suspended. 
they were in shock to learn that, you know what I mean? Like, so on that tip, right. I mean, then on top of that, like, you know, taking notes from folks that we've spoken to and also the task force in Montana who did a community listening session is that there are so many people who are simply not going to report their loved one missing because of the fear of criminalization. If you yourself have a warrant out for your arrest and your child is missing, what's to say that if you walk into the police doors, that you yourself won't become incarcerated. And that actually happened in the first 48 Chicago missing persons where a um, a Hispanic man, a Latino man, went to report that his, you know, the mother of his children who was experiencing mental health crises had disappeared with their children. And when he went to CPD, they arrested him. They arrested him. And so, you know, ultimately he was released and the first 48 picked up his case and they they successfully reunited him with his family and that, you know what I'm saying, et cetera, et cetera. But there are so many at the at the level of taking a report, right, like so many people are not even making it to that step because of police involvement and um, that, you know, there's so much footwork that is required re-missing persons that, you know, again, like actually requires a group of people who are invested in spreading the word about, you know, this young person who is missing um, so that even if that young person is in the vicinity, they will know that someone cares about them and that someone is looking for them. But officers, they say, well, we're spread, we're spread thin. We have to figure out who to prioritize. Oh, that person just ran away. That means, you know, we're not going to give, you know, that means that, you know, we, right, because they don't want to be found. But but that being said, it's like if um, what we have seen even, you know, in this city is when you let a young person know that you care about them, that someone is looking for them, they're much more likely to actually to return, especially if what they're facing in the street is forced survival work, you know, um, human trafficking, having to decide, well, I'm going to sleep on this person's couch and they are saying, just do this this one time. I'm going to do it so that I can at least, you know. Even in that, it's like there's also this thought as a young person that if you have run away, there then becomes a fear of if I return home, I'm going to get in trouble. Like, I don't want to get in trouble. And I understand that it could mean so much more. And even in the case of the the man who you just whose case you just spoke of, there has to be a moment where we are thinking about the human and not punishment, right? Because punishment, even in the case of families being afraid to go to police, in the case of um, kids being afraid to return home, punishment is like this theme um, that is synonymous across cases. I'm like to even add another layer on top of this, like the foundation that you're talking about, you know, in the case of Tequila Tribbett, who had been, you know, who had been, you know, moved to her aunt's house and then was running away from her aunt's house, you know, numerous times, she would run to her friend's house. And, you know, at some point, 
um, police said to the friend's house, you know, to the adults in the house, hey, you know, if she's here the next time, y'all might actually go to jail y'all cells for, you know what I mean? Y'all are going to face criminal charges for this. And so the next time that Tequila ran, she was in the hands of a over 30-year-old man. And even though, you know, she got in touch with her friend the day after she ran away from the DCFS group home and told her friend, he keeps beating on me. He won't stop beating on me, right? Like, you know, it was like she she didn't have anywhere else to go but to, right? And so she's with him. Now he's exploiting her. And, you know, it's not documented if he had, you know, um, uh, if he sexually assaulted her or anything like that. That's not on paper, right? Because so many people's sexual assaults don't live on paper. But we do know that she lived for two weeks after that. And and when she, um, you know, we think about Tequila often. We got to know her friends very well and learned how um, now they're 18 years old. They were 14 when she was reported missing. You know, we learned a lot from them about being young people who were trying to both protect and just also like be a friend to their best friend, you know, and how hard that was as literal grade school students, like seeing teachers, you know, tell to Kayla that she was going to end up dead, you know, and that was something that really stuck to them. They were like, why were we as 14 year olds trying to keep her safe when there were all these adults that, you know, because of the way that they saw to Kayla, you know, to Kayla had bipolar disorder Tequila had been severely abused in her young life. And, and you know, that is all true. But her friends talk about how smart she was, how good of a dancer she was, how she was on TikTok before everybody was on TikTok. Like she was just, you know, that someone described her as like a light bulb. Like she was just very bright energetically. But adults and the system around her didn't really treat her that way and didn't keep her safe. Right. They treated her, you know, not like a survivor, but as an offender, right? And also not as a child. And you not know, as a child. We're, we're talking about literally an eighth grader who ended up to survive, to have a safe place, turning to an adult male who ultimately, you know, um, Tequila was found in Gary, Indiana, and um, she had been murdered and she had also been raped before she had died. And so, you know, there's like this adultification of children that, you know, happens to black children, particularly black girls, where Tequila, it's not in a police report, it's not written, but Tequila in her life wasn't really treated as a child by a lot of people who should have helped her. Um, and I think that one of the things that we saw in that, you know, Tequila in particular was the power and the beauty and the strength of little, little black girls in Bronzeville trying to protect their friend and also love on their friend. But then furthermore, a child that was deeply failed by the systems that are there to protect her, DCFS, CPS, CPD. Um, and I, we think about her all the time, you know, like she should be alive. Um, and it was very hard. I mean, our job as journalists is to bear testimony and create a space for people like Tequila's friends to be able to share their story, to feel comfortable enough to do so. But, you know, it was really challenging to to read about what had happened to Tequila because, you know, when you're thinking about this child was in a night ministry shelter, ran away from there, and within 24 hours was calling a friend to be like, help me get back to the shelter because I am being 
beaten. And it's kind of like when you read through these things, you're like, well, we have all these systems that are, you know, supposed to protect or serve people. But like, why did that happen to that child? And and I think like the implications of Tequila having to be all the way on the north side as a means of, you know, it's like it's like when she when she was at that group home, she was all the way on the north side, completely disconnected from her community. And one of the most beautiful things that we learned from the story of Tequila was the ways that the security in the Dearborn homes were taking care of her. You know, the ways that informal, you know, our chosen family, the pe- the bystanders, right? Um are, have have decided to be responsible for making sure this baby got her hair done, right? Making sure that she got some shoes, you know what I'm saying? Like things like that, you know, even, you know, right at the end of her life, you know, they they knew something was wrong because she didn't come and get her hair done. And they, um, young, young folks described, you know, them talking on the phone to her, you know, this, you know, and how, she sounded like deflated, low energy, like she had been through it and they could feel that even just through her voice. And, you know, the reason, you know, there was, it was like, she, she was supposed to be, you know, they knew something was wrong because she didn't come and get her hair done because, you know, and the reason why she could get her hair done in the first place is because community stepped in. And and I think a lot of times that when we're having conversations about what's going on in the streets of Chicago, you know, there are these like informal relationships that are built that can be so in the same way that a young person can be exploited, right? And by by folks, folks can be protected and supported by somebody who just sees them walk past a desk every day, you know? And so um, it just really makes you think a lot about the power of tribe, you know, to Kayla and going to whomever's grandma house, right? That was her tribe. It was like, I can't take it in these four walls anymore. I need to get out. So I have these other safe places, but there are not many safe places, living rooms, you know, safe houses for young folks to go, you know, within or near their community when they're experiencing, right, right in the home. I feel like that to kind of one thing when I was listening to the, you know, this conversation is thinking about sort of like, what is the the role of this story? And in some ways, I think it's poking at the narrative that police tell about what missing persons looks like in Chicago and how they handle it and what that actually looks like in their their data. But um, I think it also points to in what ways, what are solutions to this? And one of them being the need for safe spaces, for housing, for more care for people who are dealing with abuse, who are dealing with substance use disorder, other things that maybe is like a shift away from policing. And and those were things that were brought up by families themselves about- Intervention. Intervention. Um, and I think that that is very, intervention is very relational, I think, when you think about it, because there are things that, you know, through our reporting that we saw the way that family conflict can drive children running away. 
um, the way that domestic violence really endangers women and girls. There's a lot of things that we saw that I think, um, yes, like to look into policing and to see the ways that it, these cases are being handled currently, but also thinking beyond that to what are ways that we could better fund and support programs and people. Yeah. What is it? What is a community? What is a community that cares look like? You know what I'm saying? What are the ways that we can tap in to each other? Um, and, and what are the ways that people are already informally tapping into each other um, that we can support and build on? Um, and, and I mean, in the store, you know, in the, in the sense of Tequila, what are the ways that police were actually the, um, the barrier for yeah to Kayla being able to access support her, her safe space yeah one of the things that has come up in thinking of solutions and just um, things that could work and helping is I'm I'm oftentimes thinking about free third spaces and so like spaces in the city where teens can convene without being um, criminalized. Um, one of the things that you all mentioned as well was like this um, prescribed deviance of black youth, right? So adolescents, teens, people who are in grade school. And um, this is so um, personal because of so many different ways as being a black person from the South side of Chicago and going to CPS for only a year. So I had I had access to what a safe school environment could be, right? I went to private school, unfortunately, that it would take having to pay thousands of dollars to be in a space where you're treated like every other kid, right? Just a kid. And then going to CPS for seventh grade, and I was completely like, oh my God, this is happening. And looking at my classmates and being like, why is the teacher on that with them? They're a kid. Like, why is CPD showing up in the middle of our class to like come and arrest a student? And it's like this innocence and this childhood that is like snatched from young black kids, right? I'm so sorry. I knew this would happen. <laughs> but I think about how these young people don't have spaces that they can go to, whether it be school. A lot of times when you are experiencing um, domestic abuse or domestic violence or things that are happening in the home, the school could be seen as a potential es escape. And then you're going to school and then you have teachers who are, again, compounding the issue and creating a space that does not feel comfortable, isol further isolating you. And so isolation is even coming up where there's this, um, in the case of Tequila, where she's being taken out of her community, put in a faraway space, and then she's not around her friends. She can't go over their houses. And so how are we, how are the families? I know that a lot of this has come down to what the families want to do in terms of organizing. I know someone's uh, sister or aunt has a boutique where she's like, hey, if I see a young girl who needs a space to just come and chill and be and feel beautiful and dress up and see themselves, I know these families are now creating these 
third spaces, these um, these networks to, to keep each other safe. Can you all speak a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, you know, we we love Tabitha Pittman. I want to name. Yeah, the Pittman woman, you know, so Tabitha's sister, Shante Bohannon, um, she went missing. Um, I think she's a really important person to talk about because she was dating someone who had been shot in front of her. And um, her mother, Tammy Pittman, Miss Tammy, she had told us, you know, recollected that story to us, which was that her daughter really ran for her life um, after seeing her boyfriend shot and was being shot at herself. But the narrative that kind of played out on social media was that she was involved in his murder. Yes. No, there was like Shantae and her mom had actually just moved to the South side from out West. They're a West side family. And um, apparently there was an, a more recent ex-girlfriend, you know, allegedly ex-girlfriend who was the person who actually had something to do with it. But, um, but Shantae having just recently started dating him, there was confusion about who actually was the person who set him up. And, and, um, and she, you know, ended up her, her sister, Tabitha, who has this boutique, um, her sister had told us about like, after that happened, how the, all the women in the family really gathered around Shantae and created a safe house kind of for her in in their west side home trying to take care of her to keep her safe where a lot of people were speculating that she was involved in her boyfriend's death um and her mother miss tammy had told us about how her daughter really wanted to set things right with her her late boyfriend's family um and just to you know just to further affirm that she had nothing to do mm -hmm. and so you know after kicking it you know one Tabitha goes in, in an interview that we have with her she goes into detail about how you know that that moment those last moments that they had all sleeping in the same bed you know what I'm saying like caring for her after she had experienced what so many young people in Chicago experience losing a loved one to gun violence not only losing a loved one to gun violence, but being there when it happened, right? And and as she's recovering from that trauma, going to the repast, going to her boyfriend, her late boyfriend's mother's home, and never coming out. And, you know, similar to what we had come up with, other families had told us in the reporting was that Miss Tamley struggled with police not believing her that her daughter was actually missing. Um, you know, Trina had mentioned earlier in this conversation that she had to come back with her, um, the um, her daughter's father to even get the police report taken. It took another day for police to go to the house to look for her. And then ultimately, you know, a couple of days after Miss Tammy had reported Shantae um, missing, she was found naked in a garbage bag um, in an, an abandoned garage on the south side. Um, and, and to this day, um, her her death is undetermined. Right. And and so when officers, it's interesting narratives, right? Like when officers first saw, saw, you know, her, found her, they were like, oh, 
the, the you know, this, these are words of, um, of Miss Tammy. She's like, the officers told her, you know, all the, they were so sloppy, like with this, you know, there's, there's clearly like there's DNA, et cetera. You know, Miss Tammy actually tells us that, um, there was, you know, DNA that she had been assaulted. Right. Um, now when Shantae's body reached the medical examiner's office, the, the ME could not determine how she had died. They could not determine how she had died. So her death was ca classified as undetermined. But detectives, based on the scene of the crime, you know, based on um, the evidence taken from her body, could have, have said, this is a homicide. But instead, you know, especially given what they were saying when they first got to the crime scene, what you know to the to the scene where her body was found you know based on you know allegedly some dna that was taken from her right they were like oh you know we're going to get him that's how they were talking right um but then but but her death because her death was deemed as undetermined by the medical examiners officers had a way of not diving deeper into what actually happened. Although, you know, when, when Tammy went into the station, she was saying, you know, my, my daughter, my other daughter received a call from Shantae and, and, and Shantae was saying that there is a gun, you know what I'm saying? That they're holding her there against her will, right? There was like, that is in Shantae's missing persons report. And in fact, the day after the police went to knock on that door to, you know, to see if Shantae was there, the day after that, her body was disposed of and found. So like, so, you know, it's clear, you know, Tabitha says this, Shantae didn't undress herself. Shantae didn't put herself into this garbage bag, you know, um, but, you know, ultimately officers decided well in me says undetermined we're just it's a cold case now instead of looking at the fact in, instead of looking at what what evidence was there in order to show that you know what I'm saying? At least somebody was a somebody had disposed of a body. That that is a crime. You know what I'm saying? And interviewing maybe the family members of people who she was visiting at the time because we have that context. Well, it's interesting and and there are some reports about this already is that there are multiple people who witnessed the shooting of of this young man who are now missing. Joanna Wright, the person who was kidnapped I talked about earlier, she also was um a, you know, it was with again, she was kidnapped within the same area as where this young man's his where his family lived, right? Another guy, Mario, I believe is his name, reported missing after entering that same home. And so, you know, I'm not making any statements about, you know, whether or not the people the people who live there um has something to do right. But it's there are many arrows pointing in that in that direction. There are many people who have not, since this young man's murder, um, who have become have come up missing. Yeah, and and Tabitha, who ended up opening um, a boutique in her sister's name, she she wanted to have the space to both have a location where people could come in to share tips or information on Shante, but also to support 
young black women and girls in Chicago, much like her sister, just to have a space where she would say that where they feel honored, they don't even need to buy anything. I just want to just come and chill, spend time with me. Um, she talked a lot about when Shantae went missing, that it was at this moment in her life where she was starting to really hit her stride of like becoming herself and about, you know, the way that when you're young, you can feel lost sometimes. And, and Tabitha, I think that's one of the things that we saw with various families is that there hasn't really been a space where families to come together to really talk. We did host a brunch here at um, city bureau's office for, for families so just so they could meet one another and talk. Yeah, um, Kiara Cole's mom came, um, Daisy Hayes' daughter, Sonia Rouse's sister, um, the Pittman women, um, Jamisha Connor's family member. Um, there was a, a, you know, folks who were coming together not to be like, to be watched by others who are like, oh, like you have a missing birth loved one. Like, how did that feel? Right. It was it was more space where they were in charge, where they they were asking each other. It was like, you know, we had some kind of agenda. You know, we were trying to keep it slight. We didn't, you know, but they off the gate. They was like, so what happened to your, you know, it was like because they knew they had this experience in common. And then it's like they were saying the same things. Oh, officer going on vacation. This office, he and they all talking about, yeah, they kept telling us he's on vacation. Well, he's on vacation. What you know what I'm saying? It was like interesting to see the various things that are even told to families when they're calling the police and police are not. Because why would you tell somebody that the officer on this case is on vacation while there is a child missing? And who's doing who is now in charge of handling this case? When this and and that being said, there is no missing persons unit in the city of Chicago. You know, they're passing these cases to detectives. Um, um, you know, again, for example, the officer on Sonia Rouse's case, um, Kimwood alumna um, Sonia Rouse. You know, uh, Officer Yaversky, which is, I mean, just like. Coming, coming back to even the officers that they're putting on the case, you know, when we spoke to Sonia's family, they're like, he is incompetent and he is not doing his job and he is useless. And we had to go above his head. We had to go talk to the Sergeant Coleman in order to get anything done on our, on, on Sonia's case. And then when you look at Officer Yerversky's, um, police misconduct records you see that there there are complaints from not only his wife but also his daughter of physical abuse of violence of a diagnosed anger issue um and you know it made us think a lot about how Sonia Rouse was a survivor um of intimate partner violence and what it means when the officer who is responding to her instance of a missing person, right, is actually a perpetrator, documented perpetrator, multiple allegations. And so how much is he, how much work is he going to do for her? <laughs> exactly. Right. And, right. you know, I, I think that a lot of this falls also under, we have 
Mayor Brandon Johnson, who did campaign on wanting to do work to deal with underlying issues of domestic violence, gender-based violence in Chicago, but also specifically trying to improve the ways that families can access resources when people go missing in the city. And so I think one of the things is that the story really looks at there are there is unfortunately a very wide-ranging display of a lot of stuff going wrong with how the Chicago Police Department handles missing persons cases. There's also families who are directly impacted in Chicago that they, you know, I remember we had a conversation with Shannon Bennett from Coco who said like any solution to these issues without talking to people directly impacted these these survivors, these families, it's really it's not it's not a solution. And so I think that's one of the things is that there is a lot to look into at the Chicago Police Department from how their own oversight of why is so much data missing, you know, um, why are there, we, we have found in our own reporting double the number of cases um, that were closed on criminal that should have been reclassified as homicides. You know, there's a, there's a lot of things going on, but there's also people in Chicago who um, when we think about Mayor Brandon Johnson, we think about the Illinois Task Force on Missing and Murdered Chicago Women. There are families that they really need to be centered and listened to and and believed. Yeah, a thousand percent. And 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 it is the responsibility of the folks who who ultimately, you know, who ultimately close these cases to not only actually verify that a missing person has been found and also to identify what is the final disposition of the case? What is the nature of this case? Because by law, you know, um, by law, they are supposed to, you know, the, the cases are supposed to be set up so that they can learn from and about missing persons cases. You're not going to learn about the underlying issues connected to missing persons cases, if every time you close the case, you close it non-criminal. So we, you know, it's like, I'm sure so many people have even looked at the data and been like, either been like, well, there's not a problem here at all. Exactly. All these people have been found. Um, there's, or, or, well, you know, when people are found, they're they're not usually connected to a crime because some of them are reclassified to homicide. Some of them are reclassified to offense against children. And if the issue is that people who are ultimately found don't want to share what happened to them because they're afraid of police, then get somebody else to do it. You know what I mean? Get somebody else who who can who can actually document what's happening with missing persons cases so that we can identify patterns so that we can have conversations about solutions. Yeah. I think going from there, um, there's a site that you all have been working on. Please tell me a little bit more about um, the site and just what your hope is from all of this investigative work. Like what what do you if 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 the city could listen in on this, what do you all want from this uh, from this information? What do you want people to know and how do you want people to act based on what we're what we found here? 
So are all of our reporting and the stories are on chicagomissingpersons.com. Um, we're also partnering with Chicago Reader, with the tribe, to publish some of the stories. Um, we have on Instagram, if you check out Invisible Institute's uh, Instagram, City Bureau's Instagram, you can see some really beautiful reels that have the voices of family members themselves that Kai Thomas, a uh, local director, um, created. This, um, yeah, the project is multimedia, chicagomissingpersons.org. You can find video you can find photos, you can find narratives, you know, um, you can find, gra you know, data, right? Like information that um, that will help you better understand the issues that intersect so deeply with missing persons cases. And honestly, what we hope that what I'm hoping that comes out of this is like at this point, like there is a crisis in Chicago. We're having lots of conversations about black youth who are offenders of crime. We're not having a lot of conversations about what happened, what these black youth are experiencing before they are part perpetrating crimes. We are, um, we certainly need the IG to take a deep look into you know, the cases where they were closed, uh, where we've identified that they've been closed, even though folks have not been found. Um, but then also um, take a deep dive to look at, you know, the cases in general, what what is happening, what how many people have actually been found you know, even if they were to take a sample and to pull and do some kind of calling just to see, you know, what ultimately, what is, what, what was going on? Like, we need someone to take a deeper, more granular look at this stuff. Um, we're hopeful that, you know, policy spaces, even funding for folks to, to support, you know, folks will come out. Like I, you know, I myself, I know when I'm at the grocery store and it's an old trifling man asking me if I need a ride home with my groceries, right? Like there, we know the places, these contexts where exploitation is occurring mm -hmm, and offering support for folks. Um, we, we know that in each neighborhood, there is a home with a young person who might, who, who might be experiencing conflict. You know, one, one person who spoke with us talked about how during the pandemic, young people were just showing up in the middle of the night, right? Conflict is not happening during business hours all the time. Like there's so much, um, that's happening with young people, um, and 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 they need a place to go and like you know again even as we're thinking about the crisis of this humanitarian crisis where where um asylum seekers migrants populations are coming to chicago we're seeing lots of people who are sleeping in the police station districts like um and and those folks we know have a higher likelihood of being trafficked because they quite literally don't have a a way to work legally right so it's like it's like today we can't think about what's happening today as if it was happening even 10 years ago right because like the population of folks who were already being exploited the population of folks who are already, you know, being trafficked, taking advantage of, who had nowhere to go, you know, there's a now a new population of folks that where now, you know, crime 
you know, trafficking, et cetera, is, is expanding where like, right, right. Like this is a brewing, it is literally a, oh my goodness. And so, you know, the hope is that there can be not surveillance, right. In the sense of like, we're surveilling you because you might be an offender, but just like support, support and care. Right. Um, and, and if, if our elected officials can, not only you know, and CPD can create case, actual case closure procedures for missing persons cases. If folks can, mm-hmm, if, if if there can be some missing persons unit, if there can be some investigation into the officers who have closed cases without finding folks. I mean, in the case of Shavana Prather, literally her case was closed as if, and they said she was located, talked to the complainant. She was found April 26th. Two hours later, her body was found. Two hours later, her body was found and a, and a homicide investigation was open. Did anybody go back and even, you know, take a, ask them, well, dang, didn't y'all just say that she was found? You know what I mean? It's just, um, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, there, there must be some type of, uh, opportunity for folks to ask for care without fears of being criminalized. Um, do you have other? I I think just people being believed. That's another thing is that, you know, like just you had brought up like the criminalization of black youth in Chicago and not really seeing black children as actually being children. I think that one of the things I hope from our reporting that happens is from CPD to the mayor's office to the task force, really, really trying to go to people impacted and and looking at what do people actually need? Because, you know, we've identified a lot of these issues around policing and just hoping that um, people who are in positions of power try to go more to the root with stuff just to to help people survive, to prevent a lot of this violence. Um, And I feel like that's, you know, from, you know, you had brought up, you know, about um, the the targeting um, of young women and girls that happens, you know, that was something that came up in a lot in our reporting is like, you know, let's talk about these things so people can recognize that these are issues, that online spaces can be very exploitative for young people. Like, let's try to think about ways that, we can share information and create more resources outside of policing to to really help people steward their own lives. But I think it's also just recognizing that there's a huge issue in Chicago of demonizing black children um, and, and, you know, focusing on crimes. And like, I hope that our reporting is part of just a, a better trajectory in Chicago media of like, let's look at, let's believe people and let's look beyond that to what is driving um, a lot of missing persons cases and and issues with how they're handled by the Chicago police department. And let's talk to young people. Like we must talk to young people. I remember when I was um, a um, a little bit embedded in uh, a high school, a Chicago public high school, and they put an anonymous box comment box up. And the things that young people were putting into this box, like, Young folks are experiencing violence and abuse from even their own classmates because there is this peer-to-peer exploitation, this peer-to-peer coercion. Like, that is happening, 
right? Like there are young women who historically there have been young women who have been groomed by older men. My sister tells me stories about how R. Kelly was up at Kenwood back in the day, you know, um, even talking to school officials about early dismissals and how like, you know, some Oh, that's my uncle. You know what I mean? Like, like you, there must be some protocols around, like, um, around, you know, paying attention to the, the safety, the exploitation, right? And yeah, and, and we need to hear from the young people, and we need them to have a space to share with us about what they've experienced without them having to speak on the record themselves because a lot of times they're afraid if they say something they're going to have to identify an offender and if they are if their offender is someone who you know who is in their lives or um in their class um or even if if they name their offender and and they they are not believed and then they get in, then they still stuck with that person. You know what I mean? Like we need to have more conversations out loud with young people because they are experiencing things. They have access to things. We have no idea. We cannot even imagine young people right now and substance use abuse is so serious. There's so many young people who are doing pills. There is a popping pills culture. There's so many young people who have mental health issues, who are diagnosed and undiagnosed. You know, there are so many young people who are experiencing conflict in their homes who come to school and they got an attitude, you know, and, and folks are not asking the right questions because, because there's already such a strain on CPS. And, and teachers are like, I just need to get my, I just trying to get my students, I'm da 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 da. Um, not having social workers, not having um, more adults who, you know, in support roles. And people who are trained therapists and people who can get creative with, okay, let's sit, the, let's take this person out of class for a little bit. Let's go just chill. Let's go to the chill space. Even thinking about CPS schools specifically on the South side, because that's where I can speak to my experiences. Like, where is the room that we could just go in and and hang and paint and write and draw and, and even thinking about art programs and when we think about what I'm hearing too in this is a lot about funding and knowing where a lot of our tax dollars in Chicago go, a lot of that money has gone to supporting CPD. And then what I'm further thinking about is like, what's happening with the schools? What's happening with our um, our our shelters? What's happening with our um, the hospitals that have uh, spaces for people with mental needs? Like, there's, I think there's all of these um, systems that are at play with each other that are then leading to, as you both spoke on, leading to the missing, um, the, the numbers, I, I think the numbers are striking and people can read about them in the article, but I think it was that black women and girls make up 2% of Chicago's population and 30% of missing person cases. And that's just ages 10 to 20. Ages 10 to 20, Black girls represent 30% of the cases, but are just 2% of the population. We're talking about the age range for human trafficking. 
for exploitation, for I finally have agency. I'm trying to get up out this jam because I cannot deal with the way that I am, you know, what I'm experiencing. Like it's, it's deep. And, and the last thing I will say is that I think we as adults need to get active too. You know what I'm saying? Like the hope is that from the reporting, adults get active, not only in the children's lives and are honest with the children in their lives, but are honest with their friends. Because like, although, you know, what we're seeing on in these numbers is that it's majority, you know, black children, lots of times black women and girls or black children, black girls, you know, we're, we also know that there are a lot of grown folks who are reported missing or who police refuse to report missing because they say they're adults, right? Um, folks who are experiencing violence in their adult relationships, folks who are experiencing isolation. You know, I, I think we all have a friend who was going through it or who disappeared when she got into that relationship with that person. Like, you know, asking more questions and holding our friends to a standard, um, and, and, you know, it's, I think we, we as grown folks need to get active um, because a lot of stuff is happening right in front of us and we, you know, not being present, we just slide past it when there are actually lots of red flags that we can have deeper conversations with and sisterhood and brotherhood and they, them hood, you know? Okay. And I think on the site, is there a, a space where folks can learn about other resources or ways that they can maybe donate time, donate funds um, to the work that you all are doing and, and maybe learn how to get organized? That's a really great question, Shawnee. We did include a resource list um, that it has local and some national organizations and groups that work on these issues, as well as you know places that if you you have a friend or yourself, you're experiencing intimate partner violence, places that you can go to to look for resources. Um, ChicagoMissingPersons.org. Yeah, please. Yes. Well, the only, the other, I'm sorry, one other resource that was, thank you, was, was what came up for us because we did have a public newsroom where the CEO, Susan Frankel of the National Runaway Safe Line was here talking and there is a online forum where young people can go like write anonymously in a in a on a, you know post on a message board about what they're experiencing and they can read about other young people across the nation what they have reported experiencing and I think that's another that's just another really great resource because with you know even um they themselves recognize they being like leadership at this safe line recognize that um, actually a majority of their population do not even want to include law enforcement and, and, and how um, young people, when they're planning to make a run, when they're planning to for an escape, like they come to this website if they have access to it and learn about it in order to like, you know, access and find, you know, find safe place. And so, you know, of course we have these, mm -hmm, so we have this resource list, chicagomissingpersons.org, where folks can like dive into these resources, but like just know these, this resource that we have created have resources within the resource, right? Places where you can, you can like hear other people's narratives and put, put your own narrative down and, um, um, and see, 
how folks respond to what you have to say too. Well, I want to thank both of you so much for your time today and also all of the time that you all have invested into this work. Um, It's very necessary. And I think the more that we tell stories, the more that we um, corroborate our stories and we, we convene and, and, kind of stay away from isolating. I think those are the ways that we're going to learn about some better solutions and really get our feet on the ground. So to all of those listening, we just spoke with Trina Reynolds-Tyler and Sarah Conway. Thank you all so much for tuning in and I will see you all on the next episode of The Sit Down. Pew, 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 pew.